there's so many adults involved in their lives that they don't know how to have fun without having an adult tell you this is fun. So it would take a, a concerted effort on rec leagues, travel leagues, these elite programs to say, we value free play enough to know that we're going to get better at it. Because when you talk about things like soccer, for example, and you talk about why countries like Iceland or tiny, smaller countries like Brazil, like these, these communities, like why are they so much better at soccer than us? Is because they were raised on free play experiences. Yeah. They were playing street soccer. They were picking up size. They were, they were learning creativity that becomes now part of their DNA that is not part of the DNA of the American experience. We are not creative as a country in something like soccer. All right, because we do not put our kids in those free play experiences. That's the best proof I can give you is we're one of the largest countries in the world and we didn't qualify for the World Cup, even though you drive around this country on a Saturday morning and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of kids playing that wonderful sport, yet we can't qualify for the World Cup when per capita we're like 10 times, 20 times the size of many of these nations. It comes down to free play. Big believer in it. It is time to do something about inactive populations. From physical literacy to policy change to youth sport, education, and business development, we are a collective of smart and experienced servant leaders ready to take a stand. Welcome to the Quality Coaching Collective Podcast. It is time for action. Hello, my name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 Canadian Beach Volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, and athlete entrepreneur on a mission to positively shift the future. I will be your host as we speak with members of the collective to gain insight, challenge the status quo, and share our passion for improving health and sport culture. So clear your mind, grab a notebook, and let's dive into this episode. Welcome to the Quality Coaching Collective podcast. Today, we have Steve Boyle, sport sampling and physical literacy expert, co-founder and advisory board chair at the National Association of Physical Literacy, and two-for-one sports director. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Martin. Always good to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for making it after a hectic Christmas party last night. I appreciate that. No worries, my pleasure. <laughs> well, we'll get through this and uh, and have a good time doing it, man. Uh, where right. where in the world are you calling from right now? So I'm a I'm home base is West Hartford, Connecticut, uh, in the uh, in New England. Uh, you know, it's funny people always say where's Hartford, and I'll say it's two hours from New York, two hours from Boston, but nobody ever says they're two hours from Hartford. So um, we're trying to change that, though. <laughs> I truth be told, I haven't heard of the Hartford city. Uh, last time it was mentioned was Hartford Whalers. When when did that team depart from Hartford? I, I only know it because the day that my wife and I came in to interview to move to this city nearly 20 years ago, it's over it now, it was 1997 in April. And uh, it was the day the Whalers announced they were leaving. And so I, I thought it was a bad omen, but we we're very happy to have been here a long time. Just right off the bat, uh, this one's a challenging one, but always love to hear people's responses. Uh, three words that you'd use to define yourself, just to paint a little picture here, Steve, before we get going. Ah, three words. Um, 
I, 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 this is hard, obviously, because it's 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 hard to do without coming across as uh, braggadocious or something of the sort. But um, I, I'm a classic middle child, so I think I'm empathetic uh, as a counselor. I think I'm a good listener. I, I really, um, my whole life is really devoted to helping people. So I would say empathetic, um, energetic, and um, I think passionate is sometimes overused and has weird connotations, but I get, I get really passionate about stuff. And uh, so I think those three. Love it. Well, all of those make for a good podcast. So let's, right. let's well, dive in. Um, I will try to be empathetic, energetic, and passionate with you today, Martin. All right. <laughs> I don't think there's, there's the word try in there. We're, we're good. We're taken care of. Um, right. So Understanding your occupation and and what it is that you do, there's a few things there. Can you just describe what it is that you're up to right now? Yeah, so um, I wear a lot of different hats, Martin. And, you know, I've often said about, you know, because I was a counselor and a coach, or I still am, and and a father, that sometimes those three titles interchange um, pretty seamlessly. But uh, so right now I, I still uh, work in the public schools as a as a school counselor. Um, I do consulting with organizations and individuals on uh, on from from a role as a life coach. But really, my primary um, sort of purpose in this particular space is around sports sampling and physical literacy. So my focus this time of year typically, is getting ready for the summer in terms of our camps. So we've we started um, <clears throat> two four one sports about a decade ago, just as a really small um, opportunity to get kids to not specialize at too young an age. We just worked with girls that first year, and um, somehow it's grown into this. Uh, well, I'm talking internationally right now as I speak to you in Canada. Um, around this idea of sports sampling and how important it is to get kids to not specialize. And um, so we're, we're looking to add programming this summer. Um, and I've been doing some consulting with some other organizations on how to infuse sports sampling and physical literacy into what they're doing. So that takes up a lot of uh, my other time, if you will. Now, over the last decade, then you've grown, is it two for one sports over the last decade? Yes, that's correct. So you said you worked with just women to begin with. Where are, where is that service, or where are you at right now within that project? Yeah. So when we first started, you know, I was the, I'll just share the story with you quickly for listeners that haven't heard it. So my I have a 21 year old daughter right now, but when she was nine, she had traveled out, tried out for the local travel soccer team, and um, you know, like a lot of first time parents, you know, we had two daughters underneath her, but. Carrie, my wife, had played Division One lacrosse and field hockey, and I was a Division One basketball player. So we were both coaching. My wife's an athletic director, and I was uh, coaching two sports at the time in the high school level. We were thrilled to have her go out for the travel soccer team, and we got the call, you know, the, the call from the coach. And he said, your daughter is our number one prospect. And I was like, dude, she's nine. <laughs> she's nobody's <laughs> prospect. And uh, he didn't really get the humor, and he started to go on about the Brazilian style of soccer play that his program had and how she was going to fit into his system. And I was, you know, again, I, I'm not going to lie. I was, my ego stroked because, you know, a guy's telling you your kid is good. But I also had the reality of realizing, like, Brazilian style of soccer at age nine. Like, I mean, I, not that I'm knocking that style, but just you, you're overselling it. So, after about 15 or 20 minutes of him talking about how she was going to fit into the program, 
I said, well, look, my wife played lacrosse in college and Atlanta's showing some interest in playing lacrosse. Can you tell me what the conflict's going to be like in the spring? Because I always thought of soccer as a fall sport. He goes radio silent on me very awkwardly and says, hold on a second, as if he's going to go talk to the manager in the back of the car dealership. And he comes back and he says, we're no longer interested. <laughs> so went from number one prospect, nine years old, to not even interested in having her in the program because she wanted to try lacrosse. And I just, you know, so at that, that night, we came up with the tagline, life's too short for just one sport. I said to Carrie, look, you're an athletic director at a private school. Can we use your facility? She said, yes. We had three daughters. We knew the local youth market on the girls' side. And we just started this camp for, for girls. We did soccer, basketball, lacrosse. And then if you didn't want to do one of those three, we called it Fitness Express. And I remember it to this day because it was sort of a goofy name and I wouldn't use it anymore. And uh, so we started. But then moms would drop their, their daughters off at camp holding the hands of their sons. And the sons would be like, we want to go to this camp. So the next year we added a week for boys. And before you knew it, by the third summer, we'd outgrown the space. And then... Um, we got the we got the call from the Aspen Institute Project Play that they were recognizing us as one of eight model programs in the United States, along the likes of USA Hockey, Special Olympics, Pop Warner, and then Little Old 241 Sports. And that sort of blew it up for us in terms of what we were doing. Uh, we have a camp now in Colorado. We'll have five around the state of Connecticut. We're talking to Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, it's really growing at a rate that we want to maintain the quality of the message and, 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 you know, the quality of the product, if you will. So I don't want to franchise and that I want to make sure that everybody's doing it believes wholeheartedly what we do. So I need the, you know, the Martin readers and the Steve Boyles of local communities out there who are Pied Pipers of getting kids to come into the camp and then really offering a good, a good product and service. So it's been a wonderful model, um, and uh, you know, it's just—it's been rewarding to see how much it's resonated with communities around the country. And I, I can imagine that a lot of the coaches uh, at the college and university level are thankful for that as well, uh, just so that young athletes are getting a broad medley of of sports as they age. Because I've heard down in the states and up here as well that. You know, kids are coming into college just broken on, on a lot of different levels because they're just playing that one sport for, for so long. In fact, I think uh, Matt Young just shared a tweet today that an 11-year-old girl just signed to um, a big university down in the States for, for soccer at, at 11. It's wild. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely, uh, dare I say, asinine what we're doing with, um, with, with kids as commodities and not thinking about the end product and, uh, and what those outcomes are being, because even those kids that make it to the highest level, they're not playing with joy. They're, they're not, ha they're not having as viable an experience as they could otherwise have because it's become such a job for these kids and they're kids. I mean, they're, they're arriving there as 17, 18 year old children and they're not prepared for the expectation that's being put upon them. And so you alluded to the, you know, the, what's happening negatively to them is beyond just physical. It's, it's really the emotional pieces that that's happening as well. And it, and that's, it's sad. It's sad. It, 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 it just shouldn't be. So that being one of, of many problems, and I, I'm sure that two for one sports is tackling a fairly broad spectrum, uh, kind of attack or approach. What problem or issue are you trying to solve? Understanding that, that sports sampling or getting kids not to play just one sport is, is one of those issues. 
Yeah, you know, and and I'll be honest, Martin, I've been trying to shift from a problem-focused approach to a solution-focused approach on this, and um, and it's not to, you know, I suppose in some ways um, it is to reframe your question because I would often talk about, you know, childhood obesity and uh, mental illness, but really I, I want people to live viable lives, and I and I believe that if we take an approach of we want you to have more enjoyable experiences. And just in the way we talk about good coaching, if you don't, if you don't focus on wins and losses and you just focus on daily process, being good to each other, taking care of yourself, um, working hard, wins and losses will just take care of themselves naturally. They're a byproduct of that, right? And I think if we can go through life looking at it the same way as opposed to trying to solve problems, what we can look at it is, what am I doing today that's healthy? How am I managing my relationships? How am I managing my diet? How am I managing my physical activity? How am I uh, taking? How am I settling myself on a daily basis to really calm myself down? If we get kids to start doing those things, taking care of themselves and each other genuinely, then obesity takes care of itself. Mental illness takes care of itself. Those are the wins and losses that are natural byproducts of really doing the right things. And so, you know, after 30 years in education as a coach, a counselor, and a teacher, I'm starting to realize that it's really those daily efforts that if we can get people to focus on them, it's like dollar cost averaging, right? If every week you just put a little bit aside, eventually you're like, oh my God, I have a lot of money in the bank. It's the same thing with how we treat our bodies and how we treat each other. You build relationships both with other people, but also with yourself. You feel better about yourself, right? So I, I so I, I guess that's the long-winded answer to say I'm trying not to look at problems as much as I'm trying to look at solutions. You know what? I love it, and I just reframed that question for future episodes. So thank you very much. Uh, what does success look like for you, understanding that's what you just said? Yeah, and that's a million-dollar question, right? Because um, as we go through this space, and many of us are, are in it as part of our livelihood, is quantifying health is is difficult it's one of those things where we sort of we sort of know it when we see it you walk into a room martin you you look healthy i know you are right and then but then there are some people that don't know that well maybe somebody who comes in and has that appearance internally is full of anxiety you know or they they're just putting the mask on and that's just how they do it so they might really look good physically but they might not have any fundamental movement skills that all they do is work out on certain muscle groups, but they can't really run or jump, you know? So I think we have to be careful about saying that we can see health, right? And so what are the things we can do to quantify it? So that is why in terms of measuring success in this space, we have to be able to come up with those tools because eventually we want people to fund this space. And they only fund what we can measure. And so the challenge around this is by what age should kids be able to do certain things or feel certain things? So we're, we're working on actually in partnership with the University of Connecticut, some measurements around physical literacy. So it's taken some of the work that's been done in Canada, really trying to take a, you know, best practices from everywhere and come up with a, a user friendly way to assess physical literacy. But for me, that's to move beyond just fundamental movement skills. 
I want to be able to look at the social emotional pieces that are so important in, in kids development as well. So when we talk about confidence and desire or Canadians talk more competence and motivation that we want to then be able to have some measurements to sort of say, yeah, this kid indeed is reaching certain milestones or benchmarks of physical literacy, but we recognize you never arrive with physical literacy. It's a lifelong journey. So it's really a process. So success you like to think you can see it when you see it, but we want to understand that we still need to be able to measure it in some capacity. Man, I love that. That's I love how you're going off of just simply physical. I mean, I, I think a question that is not asked enough is how do you feel? We're, we're scared of that question, and, and it's very hard to quantify that. And over time, I feel that we the standard has dropped for how we're supposed to feel. And now all of a sudden everyone's just comfortable feeling like shit. Yeah. That's the way they think they're supposed to feel. And for some reason we've lost the fact that we're supposed to feel amazing. So good on you guys. Yeah. So I, you know, we, we, we take a deliberate approach to it. So, um, you know, I think I've talked to you this off about this offline before Martin, this idea of, um, we created a, uh, I don't want to call it a metric, but it's a, it's a system of self-regulation called top self. Top stands for thinking on purpose. And then the self acronym really is a it's, it's the skill set for, OK, I know how I want to feel. But right now I feel either anxious or angry or sad or goofy. How do I recenter myself? And so we have some uh, some pretty specific ways about how kids can quickly in an instant be able to take themselves from an, an undesirable emotional state to a more centered, focused state that. We don't call it necessarily your happy spot. We call it your top self spot because in some cases that top self spot might be, I want to be really aggressive as an athlete right now and I want to control my aggression. But in other cases as an athlete, you might want to calm yourself down. You know, you're standing over a seven foot putt. You don't want to be aggressive, right? How do I settle down? Or the difference between a soccer player going one-on-one against a defender with only the goalie behind them, you're in a different mindset right there than you are about to take a game-winning PK, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's really using this idea of social-emotional learning, mindfulness skills, and applying it to to everyday life and then back to sport. Um, Because, look, being able to do that, there's a lot of kids out there we know who can run really fast. They might have a wonderful crossover dribble or they're a great, you know, fighter in in whatever they're – they're skilled, but if they can't control their emotions and their emotions control them, they're not that valuable mm-hmm. uh, on, on a team situation. Once they get control of those emotions, man, they're, they're just now they go from being a good athlete to being a great athlete. Man, I love that. That's my current journey really is diving into that kind of uh, material and and really looking to expose kids to their best performances by gaining control of this little peanut sitting on top of their shoulders. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So because I used to say that when I was little, my competition controlled me. And so I, you know, for whatever reason, when I got angry, I just lost it. And then, but I equate competition and anger pretty similarly that once I got in in control of my competition, my own competitiveness, then I felt so completely in charge. In fact, it's always been my standard answer when I interview. If someone says, what's your greatest strength? I'll say my competitiveness. And then if they say, what's your greatest weakness? I'll say my competitiveness. And But then I'll share how once I got control of the, the negative part of it, it was 
strength, strength. It was never, it was never a negative again. I love it. Um, we've shared some really good nuggets thus far, and I, I just would love to hear a, a recent success that you've experienced based on what, uh, what you've just explained or, or some of the athletes or an athlete that you've worked with. Well, you know, and one of the, one of the toughest pieces for me, Martin, has been that in the last, um, probably 15 months, I haven't had a team that has been my own sports team because of how much I've been traveling. So I don't want to be that guy that says never be late for practice and never miss a practice. And then, oh, by the way, I'm not going to be here for the next six days because I'm going to Toronto, Canada. And, uh, so, um, that's been tough, but I think, What's been rewarding, though, is to have so many parents and kids from our programs send me so many rewarding messages about their multi-sport experience, about the courage they had to say, no, I'm not doing indoor soccer. I've been wanting to play basketball or hockey for the longest time. And if you don't think I'm good enough to stay on your fall and spring program because I'm doing indoor, I'm not doing indoor soccer. So that's that's always rewarding. Uh, it's been really cool now that we've been around for so long to see how many kids we introduced to sports in elementary and middle school who are now graduated college, often as all Americans in their in their chosen sport at that level, who now want to go back into coaching as well. So that mm. that's always so, you know, you start to realize that if we're going to talk about things like long term athletic development or really use anecdotal evidence that this has had impact on kids' lives. You need you need longevity. You need to be around long enough to be able to have people share their stories and say, I can go back to that moment where you introduced me to lacrosse and I never thought I would play it. And four years later, I'm starting for the University of Connecticut. Well, that that to us says, okay. And then four years after that, she's in sports management because she wants to get into this space and impact kids herself. So those stories are starting to pile up over our decade and, and they're particularly re- rewarding as you can imagine. But I got to tell you, man, I miss coaching like nothing else. I miss having my own team. You know, I don't care if they're fourth graders or varsity in high school. It's just, there's nothing like that sort of 10 week experience of getting to know kids and getting them to believe in something that they otherwise wouldn't believe that, that you can convince them that they can do just about anything through the power of relationship. So I'll get back at it. It's just, it's, um, so that's been the one blessing and curse of this experience for me. Well, I'm sure that you have a ton to offer when you get back into it. And it's, it's so incredible to believe in someone more than they believe in themselves and to see what kind of change can happen with consistent encouragement and in a positive environment. So great. So I look forward to hearing about your next coaching experience. All right. Well put. I appreciate that, though. You're, you're absolutely right. That it, it is. It's the power of relationship that we can we can change anything through that. So, And you know what? There's a consistency throughout a lot of the literature I've been reading is kids don't care until they find out how much you care. And mm-hmm. uh, that that really means so much to me. And I just am on a journey right now of showing how much I care because I truly do. And I know that you care as well. So right on. Thanks. Uh, is there a myth or misconception that you frequently come across in your area uh, around sport, maybe sport sampling, but something that uh, people kind of have wrong or are thinking from a, a different perspective? You know, I, these kind, kind of conversations come up all the time. I, I think um, one of the 
the things that we try to educate parents on is that, you know, I want to, I want to try to regain control of the words competition, sport, and fun that we sometimes compartmentalize those. And and the, the quickest analogy I give is that you'll often hear parents say something like, well, my kid doesn't like it. It's not fun because it's too competitive. And that you ask kids, you know, if they were to go out and play a game of any sort, they internally keep score. You're, you're naturally competing against the other person. The problem is that you do get some kids that are a little bit over the top and they focus too much on the score. But for the most part, I'd say 90% of kids could really care less, but they want to have some sense that I'm competing against you. It's really the adults that screw everything up. We're the ones putting all this stuff in the paper and we're posting it on Facebook and we're talking about how many points our kids had in a, in a six-year-old soccer game. You know, like, well, he had 11 goals. Well, nobody scores 11 goals in a real game. So, like, why are you telling everybody that? And then the kid is at dinner or at a local party with, you know, their family and they hear the parents talking about how many points they scored. And so if you're the kid who scored all those points, well, then you're starting to get this false sense of yourself But if you're the kid who was, you know, maybe the little brother or sister, the cousin or the neighborhood kid who's not that good yet because you're a late bloomer, well, you start to feel like crap because Johnny's getting all the attention for that. So we focus on stats and and measurable things so early that it was all stuff that when I was growing up, my parents could care less. They'd just be home by dinner. Try not to be bloody when you get home. You (laughs) You know, don't beat anybody up because I had five brothers. It's just we focus on on the wrong stuff. So I think the myth out there for me that parents are experiencing is that fun and competition somehow need to be separated. And that's a myth. Like it's fun to compete and it should be and we shouldn't hide from that. It's just it's not fun when we put all the emphasis on the wins and the losses or how many points somebody scored. You know, and that because that takes so much joy out of it and eventually becomes burdensome for kids and really destructive. So I think that's the biggest piece where I spend a lot of time very passionately talking about it. What would change look like for that? And I don't want to plant anything in your head beforehand. I just want to hear you go off on it. What would change be like changing the validation of that sport? Because I'm pretty sure you're also not a fan of participation badges. So what would that look like for you, Steve? You know, as I've um, had a chance to talk with folks um, globally about this concept of physical literacy, I am buying more and more into this concept of free play where we we there's so much value in free play because when I, when I do my public speaking, a lot of times I'll start out with what, what is your favorite childhood memory of yourself at play? And for anybody that's probably 25 or older, they will share experiences that are things like, you know, sledding, um, sledding in the woods, um, climbing trees, um, you know, going down to the park and, um, you know, building a fort, you know, it's all this stuff that is creative and that they, they do it on their own. And then I'll ask, how many of your of those memories you guys just shared, did they involve an adult? And I swear to God, everywhere I go, 95% of the people say no adults were there, right? The only time an adult is involved typically is with a, with a parent coach, that sometimes that was a memory that was a positive for someone, but often it's a negative, so it never gets brought up. But my point around that is that that was all free play. 
That was when we were discovering ourselves and we were creating autonomy. The problem now is that our lives are so structured and our kids' lives are so structured that we don't give up genuine opportunities for free play. So I think that we need to almost build it in um, and give opportunities at our structured practices to unstructure the time. Our first half hour is just going to be free play. And eventually the kids are going to look at each other like, what the hell are you talking about? Free play. Well, just go out, you know, play. You'll be shocked. One of my first jobs in this town that I'm in was working with the kids at risk of dropping out. So because I was a college basketball player, I said, I'll take them down to the playground. And the old guy, you know, at least I could have some street cred with them because I could hang in a basketball game. Well, I said, all right, guys, split up sides. And they looked at me like, what are you talking about? These kids had never had a a game where they split themselves up. They always had adults picking the teams for them. And I thought, well, no wonder these kids don't know how to play because they didn't even know how to organize themselves. So I think to get back to the original question about fun and competition, part of it is, is that we there's so many adults involved in their lives that they don't know how to have fun without having an adult tell you this is fun. So it would take a, a concerted effort on rec leagues, travel leagues, these elite programs to say we value free play enough to know that we're going to get better at it. Because when you talk about things like soccer, for example, and you talk about why countries like Iceland or tiny, smaller countries like Brazil, like these, these communities, like why are they so much better at soccer than us? is because they were raised on free play experiences. They were playing street soccer. They were picking up size. They were were learning creativity that becomes now part of their DNA that is not part of the DNA of the American experience. We are not creative as a country in something like soccer, all right, because we do not put our kids in those free play experiences. That's the best proof I can give you is we're one of the largest countries in the world, and we didn't qualify for the World Cup even though you drive around this country on a Saturday morning and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of kids playing that wonderful sport, yet we can't qualify for the World Cup when per capita we're like 10 times, 20 times the size of many of these nations. It comes down to free play. Big believer in it. I'm with you on that. I've come across a thought over and over and over again since leaving sport and just thinking about the art of play the art of competition, the art of the skill. And I had so many opportunities to develop my art, how I expressed myself through volleyball. Even I think of snowboarding when I'm going up the chairlift. I love going underneath the chairlift on a powder day so I can see my snowboard make the tracks. And like, that's my art form. And I, I see physical expression as an art. And when we're going around organizing things to the point where there's no self-expression in it, that creativity that you just referenced, you know, we're, we're stifling kids. And so part of my next movement is to inspire kids to express themselves physically through something, build your own art. Don't let anyone tell you what's right or wrong, but you need to learn how to express yourself physically and then tap into that energy. Um, so I, I'm right with you on the creativity. Yeah, no, exactly. I think, I, and I, and we need folks like you out there preaching that because it's so important. You know, for you to have played at the level that you played at to be able to reference it, people are going to listen. And it's just we have to provide those opportunities for kids to express themselves without fear of judgment. That's that's one of the things as well. You know, part of my fear is that 
we are a YouTube generation. And mm. a lot of times kids are afraid to experiment because they don't want to show up on YouTube. Um, you know, I know these kids in the inner city that, you know, they would be playing basketball, except that right now they haven't developed defensive skills that are good enough. So they won't try because, you know, there's a common expression of basketball, you know, you, you get your ankles broken. What it means is basically somebody crosses you over and you fall down. Well, now if you fall down, you show up on YouTube. It used to just be the guys in the gym would laugh at you for a couple of seconds and you'd get up, but now you go viral. And so because of that, kids are really afraid of failing because they're afraid of showing up on somebody's Instagram or Snapchat or YouTube channel. And it's, uh, people are looking at me like, you know, you're, you're overstating it. I don't think I am. I really don't. Because even as a school counselor, one of the things I've noticed about kids that, that struggle academically, it's because they're afraid to take risk. So it's much easier to not try than to try and look dumb. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to try. And I see it happen in the classroom all the time, but now I'm seeing it play out on the playground, no pun intended. So I, you know, it's, um, it's a sad thing. So having someone like you say, no, it's okay. You learn by failing. That's the only way you learn, right? Failure is not the opposite of success. It's the key to success. Mm -hmm. Every successful person learned by failing. I, I agree. I, a big thing that I'm into is convincing kids they need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable yes yes and and it's on them to put themselves in a situation no one's going to every single day force them to do it they need to do it themselves and that can manifest in a lot of different ways in a lot of different kids lives whether it's through sport movement art music you have to put yourself in a place where you can learn and that's by being uncomfortable and pushing through it hundred percent. It's just, I'm, I'm so excited that you said that because I, I did just do a, a preseason basketball clinic. I got my coaching fixed for four days for eight hours with uh, 25 high school boys. And I, t- I started by saying, boys, the mantra of the week is get comfortable being uncomfortable. And so that was the hashtag on the Instagram. So that I'm, I'm psyched that you just said that. <laughs> well, I, how I, I close that one is you can't outsource your personal development. Yeah, you know no, that's you, exactly. You exactly. have to take full responsibility for it. You got to put yourself in it, and you got to see that through whatever it looks like. Um, we're on a roll here. We're we're super passionate today, Steve. So I'd love for you to share a tale or a moment that really captures why you love what you do. Oh man, Martin, you know it's um, I always have I, I'm a bit of a story guy, I guess. But uh, and you know now that I've it's been again 30 years doing it. I, I got my start teaching on the Lower East Side of Manhattan um, when I got out of college. And uh, so I was teaching at an all boys Catholic school, uh, inner city school. We had 56 different ethnicities, 16 different religious denominations at this, uh, you know, pretty tiny school. And one of the brothers that worked at the school, Christian Brothers, had asked me to take this job uh, working at a camp for kid with, kids with cancer where he was a volunteer. And so uh, I often share the story because I think it's pointing on a lot of levels, but I always go back to it in terms of thinking about just how important movement is. So one of the neat things is the eight-week camp is that sometimes you'd get kids that would come, depending on how sick they were, they might come for a week or the whole eight weeks. If they were in recovery and in remission, we'd want them there the whole eight weeks because the, the kids in remission were the inspiration for the kids that were current, currently undergoing chemotherapy. So when you'd pull up to this camp, 
you would typically see perhaps 12 to 14 artificial limbs uh, lined up along the pool fence, which meant the kids were swimming. And you might see a pile of wigs on the table because it was one of the first places the girls would finally feel comfortable there were other bald females at, the, at, the, at this camp. And but I'll never forget this one day, the bus comes up, this girl comes off the bus, and she grabs me by the hand and says, will you run with me? And I said, sure. And we take off into a full sprint while she's holding my hand. And as we walk back, I ask her her name, and she says, Yvonne, and I get to know her. And you know how it is. You do this long enough, you get some kids that are just truly specialty in a lot of ways. So um, during the winter, what we would do would to stay connected with the kids. So our, our feeder hospital was Memorial Sloan Kettering, which a lot of folks know of as one of the top cancer hospitals in the world. Well, that's in New York City. Right next to New York City is New Jersey. Well, New Jersey, between you and me, is not known for its ski mountains. But we took the kids skiing on what they thought was a mountain in New Jersey. And Yvonne, the girl that took my hand and took me running, who I had become close and friends with, we're a, we we're going to go skiing. We're going to go. We're on the we're on the bus. She's she's from she's from Harlem, New York, and uh, she had never been skiing before. Very excited. It was adorable how excited she was. So some of the kids would go up on the ski lift, and similar to the pool experience with with skiing, when you have an artificial limb, you would never put a regular ski on the artificial limb because you can't control it. So they take the artificial limb off, and then the ski poles have little outriggers on it that are like little skis on the end of it, which they then, they ski on the one leg, but then they're using the ski poles to control them with these little outriggers, which was really cool. But I'm on the, on the ski lift with Yvonne and she's so excited and uh, we're going to go down the mountain together. So we get off the ski lift and she starts looking around and she's taken in the, the experience and she goes, Steve, it's so beautiful, isn't it? And I said, uh, Yvonne, you're blind. How do you know it's beautiful? And she goes, I can just tell. And so, you know, when I tell this story, obviously I intentionally don't tell you that she's blind until that moment, but she was so full of joy and so optimistic and it really was beautiful. She could tell. It was one of those things where it was crisp and cold, but the sun was great. You could actually see the New York City skyline because it was so clear, about 60 miles away. It was crazy. And um, But it spoke to me about the fact that we complain about everything, right? Mm. And that for this kid to have that experience, to be out on the mountain or to just take my hand running, that's why we should be doing this. Like every kid deserves the opportunity to play and have experiences like that, even if you're limited by one leg or not having the joy of sight, she still had a, a an optimism and a joy about her that was so different than other kids. And I thought of all kids who had the reason to not be joy filled, it would be her, but she was the opposite. Man, that's beautiful. I'm not even going to touch that. That's just wonderful. Um, in in thinking about that, a just blind and with those two little side riggers, that's incredible. Were, were you behind her, holding her, and and supporting her, or was she just r- yeah? R- so r- ripping um, solo? Which, which she she actually was uh, not a um, um, 
an amputee. So she, so her only her only um, uh, disability from the from the cancer had taken her sight. But a lot of the friends that were there were. So we did you know so old school pizza pie. So you know where you. Um, she was inside, like, so I treated it like I was the ski instructor and she went down and we just went, you know, left, right, left, right, all the way down the mountain. And we probably fell five or six times like everybody does. And, but it was just, you know, it was a blast. Right on. Well, I want to come back to something that we haven't really touched on yet, but it would be terrible for me not to bring this up because you're just so into it and, uh, an expert within the field, physical literacy, we kind of whizzed past it. Where are you at within the physical literacy journey and, and what are you bringing to life down in the States? Yeah, so um, Canada, as you know, is probably a decade ahead of the United States in this space. And, uh, and, and even folks who have been talking the language for a long time get, get really frustrated with it. The challenge for me, um, and I've written about this before, is that you know, the old expression is, how do you eat an elephant? Well, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Um, and for us in the U.S., it's a giant elephant because, you know, we've got, we don't have a ministry of sport. And so, you know, I've got Shape America that I, I, I want to get on board, Society of Health and Physical Educators. We've got the USOC, we've got the NCAA, and then we've got major media markets like ESPN, and we've got major product companies like Nike and Under Armour. So, then you got multi-sport organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs and YMCA's. And so I've had conversations with all those organizations and everybody on a singular level loves the concept of physical literacy. And of course, you know, they're, they want to know, you know, what's the definition and how is it applied and trying once you get people to grasp it, they're all in. The problem then is what do you do with it? And so um, having been in this space for probably, you know, I didn't know I was in the physical literacy space 10 years ago, five years ago, where, where I was really introduced to the concept um, in whole, where sports sampling is one tool towards developing physical literacy, but it's not the only tool. To me, it's one of the best catch-alls because it's a way to, through fun, to give kids the opportunity to develop fundamental movement skills, but we still need to teach those fundamental movement skills, right? And so, you know, just because I put you into a volleyball match doesn't mean that you can you can set and you can block and you can serve. I still need to teach you how to do those things. But if I can have it be an, a, uh, an enjoyable experience on the front end, you're more likely to develop those because you have a desire to want to learn those skills. So. What we're doing is when we formed the National Association of Physical Literacy, it was initially to, to test out direct programming. We were doing work in local uh, regional boys and girls clubs and inner city schools. Obviously, I was doing the work in our sports sampling camps. But it, um, it's now the National Association of Physical Literacy. I have a core group. When I say I, the folks I started with are still programming in local communities. But I took the approach of I'll be the advisory board chairperson while that organization is doing the local programming and the rest of the advisory board, which includes great folks like Jay Coakley, a renowned sports sociologist, Cedric Bryant, chief science officer at, at ACE, um, Dr. Shell Wong, who advised Michelle Obama on uh, the Let's Move Active Schools program, John O'Sullivan, you know, from our, our group at the Quality Coaching Collective, really great people who are passionate about this. So 
it's tough for me because I'm always, I'm such a doer. I, you know, I'm, I'm like yourself, Martin and Matt and, and the rest of the guys who are part of our group that I don't want to just do advocacy. I don't want to just do promotion and, and education. I want to actually program, but there's a need to do some top down stuff in physical literacy in this country to get people on board with what the concept is while concurrently we're starting to program from the bottom up. So I feel like I'm, I'm still a little bit of doing both, but I'm trying in my role as advisory board chair to influence the influencers so that they can then fund and program from bottom up stuff while I'm looking to continue to develop the camp. So one of the neat things we do have going on, though, is that NAPL, National Association of Physical Literacy, uh, we are in a, uh, a pre-K through grade four inner city school, 450 uh, kids and uh, full year um, where the principal said, we love your approach. We love your model. So it's one of the only school. It, it's the only school in the country that we know of that is uh, attempting to infuse physical literacy into the culture of the school, 100% student body, faculty, parent community. And so far, the response has been really good. But like, you, like we said before, we need to be able to test it out. And it's not going to be an overnight thing. So it's probably a two-year program by the time we'll have really good data to say it's impacting kids' uh, physical development, their emotional development, and their behavioral development. But uh, yeah, so that's that's where we're at with with physical literacy uh, right now, um, and just you know we're 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 continuing to take little bites of the elephant and working on creating relationships that give us the opportunity to take those really big bites that'll be impactful. Amazing. Well, have you heard of StandUpKids.org? Has that come across your not. plate? I have not. So StandUpKids.org. I'm going to write it down. StandUpKids.org. Yeah, Juliet Starrett and Kelly Starrett. Uh, they're they're pretty famous in the uh, training world, in the CrossFit world. Um, they have started a push for getting kids to stand up at schools, and they have full fundraising campaigns. I think they're based out of San Fran. They're doing great things, but Kelly is very influential in the high-performance movement space, tactical, sport, you name it, he's there. So uh, very, very connected group and they're doing big things. So standupkids.org could be an interesting uh, group to consult with or to uh, invite to the advisory board because they are so well-informed on so many different uh, levels, and they're actually in multiple schools right now as far as I know. Great. I know it's, a, it's, a, it's an organization I have not heard of, so I, I love it. I'll definitely check them out. Thank you. By all means. So moving more specifically into the QCC, um, why did you want to be a part of the Quality Coaching Collective? Yeah, so I met um, I met Matt Young um, just peripherally when I was at uh, Canadian Sport for Life uh, Summit up in Ottawa. I got to know um, about a year and a half ago. Um, oh my gosh, I guess it's coming up on two years. Oh my god, I'm getting this time flies. Uh, he was he was chatting with uh, Dr. Dean Creelers, who I had gotten to know, who had invited me up as as a guest uh, to be with him met Matt and just somehow we just, we, you know how you meet people and you sort of know your paths are going to cross again. Um, and he, he just spoke my language, right. And just, uh, had similar passion, but there's just something about him that, um, is so engaging and, um, that you just really want to be on guys like that team, you know, whether, and, and I think that's the other thing is that this group, there's no head coaches, right? Uh, we, we probably have all had that role at some point, but we've all, I, I just get the sense that 
we're all good teammates, that we recognize that the, um, the W is going to happen if we all sort of stay in our lane, but support people that are in their lane as well, and not just support them, but really help them feel, I don't know, it's like one of the first times I feel like I've been on a team in a while that I can contribute, but I'm not the only guy, you know, and that I can really, you know, have an impact, um, but with, you know, sort of the banter of sports and the people who, who just get the the joy of having failed at sports but also the joy of relationships so i i'm babbling a little bit but it's just it's been really fun getting to know the folks in this particular community right on um what does the qcc mean to you yeah i mean it's in the name right quality coaching collective and um you know i sort of see us as a consulting group in a lot of ways and that um you know someone has a need there's, it's such a diverse group of experiences that um, we could serve so many different purposes for so many different people. So I guess what it means to me is that we have like-minded folks that are mission-driven who are at the ready to help people around the world in this, you know, youth sport, physical literacy market. And uh, it's just, you know, it's a privilege to be a part of it. I second that. Um, what gets you excited about the QCC? Well, you know, I was, I met, um, recently in Boston with, uh, with Matt and, uh, Sarah Cahill and a, and a, and a good colleague of ours, who's uh, not currently a member of the QCC, Dr. Mara Smith. And, uh, just to talk about ways that we can take this concept of physical literacy and, um, and spread it and bring it to market on large scale. And, um, it was one of the, it was one of the coolest 24 hours I've had in a long time. And we, we whiteboarded stuff and we just started start to finish said, you know, let's by the end of this day have this concept of, you know, if people ask you what physical literacy is, you know, what is it? And I, I don't want to disclose yet because we're still fine tuning a little bit of what the delivery piece will be. But it was just, I think more importantly, what it was, was there were, there were PL geeks out there like me, like they, like we were so excited to talk about this all day and it was with really smart people. And it was, uh, it was so exciting to sort of see the promise of what physical literacy can do, um, in this country. And so I'm super excited about the direction the organization is going in. Please let me know when you're ready to launch because I want, I want in on that discussion. Um, I'm helping write a primer paper on physical literacy up here, and it's, it's going to be nationwide. And also a part of it will be some mental, mental health and the correlations between physical and mental. Um, but it's crazy how physical literacy is still not clearly defined on a lot of fronts. Well, and that's, you know, Martin, as, as I said in one of our recent calls, is that I, I want to get to a point where um, – we, you know, and Glenn Young has been wonderful about talking about this is this concept of having street language that, you know, the definitions that are global are very academic. Um, I think the Canadian and the U.S. definitions are, are probably the closest of any nations, but the U.S. definition is the ability, confidence and desire to be active for life. But even that is a little clunky, right? Well, what does that really mean? Like, how do you define desire, right? So, um, you know, when we were talking last week, we really talked about even narrowing it down to just competence and confidence to be active for life. Because if you have the ability and the confidence, it's naturally going to create the desire. But even that is tough for a first timer. So if you're talking to somebody who's not involved in sport, well, what does that mean? And so 
you know, what I say to kids when they ask what's physical literacy, I'm like, well, it's like having a superpower where you feel like you can do anything. And then they sort of get it at that point, right? Where, you know, that I can play anything, I can participate in anything. And kids get superpowers because that's like, it's almost primal, right? Well, you know, can I fly? You know, can I jump over buildings? You know, so this idea of physically being able to do anything you want, like I can play with kids that are bigger than me or stronger than me or faster than me. Well, that's physical literacy in some capacity, you know, at the most sort of street level, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even as a 50 year old, because I've played so many sports, I feel like I can hang with a lot of different age groups and a lot of different sports, even at my age. Now, will I be able to compete at a level that I once could? Of course not. But I have the confidence to participate in just about anything. So if I, you know, if I go to the beach and someone's playing spike ball, well, I can figure out spike ball pretty quickly because there's so many applicable things from that game. But a lot of people wouldn't have the confidence to do that because they haven't played all the sports that I have. And I think we do need to talk about physical literacy with folks because it might resonate that f- with them in some sort of different capacity, but it's important to start the dialogue in this country in particular. Agreed. And you make physical literacy sounds like so much fun. Let's go play some spike ball. <laughs> well, it is. It is. And it should <laughs> no, be. No, it is. A hundred percent. I, I, I want to do a, a couple little segments where I go around talking to, you know, grade fives, grade sixes and ask yeah. them, what do you think of physical literacy? Because, Hey, I'm sure a lot of them are like, what is that? Is that just a what a bunch of grays formulated? Is a couple words to essentially say that we we don't play anymore, so we have to organize sport and organize play. Um, yeah. But it is a sexy term because it stands for a lot of incredible, wonderful things. But uh, I, I'm looking forward to hearing more from you on that one, Steve. You got it. Um, where do you think lies the greatest possible impact for the QCC? Oh. Well, if I'm if I'm dreaming, right, and I'm, I'm, being, I'm dream. being, yeah, I'm, I'm being ideal. It's um, we're impacting in the United States um, a collaborative approach between organizations like the USOC, Nike. Uh, I'm sorry, not I didn't mean to say Nike. I meant to say the NCAA, with the support of funders like Nike. And so, because I think what happens here, because we don't have a Ministry of Sport. We have a little bit of a tiered system, but the feeder program for the USOC is really the NCAA. Most of the folks who make it at the high level have come through this four-year apprenticeship, if you will. And, you know, in some cases, depending on the sport, it might have been one or two years and things like basketball. But for the most part, our athletes are going through the NCAA. So if we can get them on board to then impact our youth culture as a result of the advocacy and the education and the programming that the QCC provides, I mean, that's a tremendous legacy. That's a tremendous impact. And I don't think it's pie in the sky. I don't think it's unrealistic. I think we just need for some bold leadership at those levels to buy into the fact that we've been doing it. We've proven it out in local markets and in our work um, that we've done in our own spaces. But now that we're a collective we have this chance to have this global influence. Agreed. Agreed on all accounts. Pie in the sky, no more. Let's get it going. Exactly. Uh, last one, and I'm sure you'll have a couple. Um, is there anyone on the QCC you want to acknowledge or even toss out some collaborations? Yeah, you know, if I wasn't so busy with everything else I have going on, I'd be on. Uh, I'd, I'd be trying to partner with everybody in this group. I mean, I. Um, 
I've gotten a, I've scheduled a monthly call with Stan Peak just because I I find him so uh, like minded but complimentary. You know, like we we inspire each other in the same way I enjoy talking to you like this, Mark. We get excited as the conversation goes on. So he he's been great. Uh, Sarah Cahill, I, I'm I'm in almost daily contact with these days. She's just one of the I, I keep calling her a kid because I sort of think of her as my little sister now that I'm a 50 year old, you know, and she <laughs> because she's younger than I am. But I hate calling adults kids, but she's just a great kid. Like she's just so excited about this space. And um, and I, you know, I so value Matt and the fact that he, you know, he came to Connecticut last year and there was, you know, to catch up with him last week in Boston and just see his energy live once again has been wonderful. Um you know, Glenn, so, so smart in this, this area of, of physical literacy, Johnny O'Sullivan down here, he and I have become good friends. I got a chance to visit with him a few weeks back up and he was speaking in Massachusetts and I was just on his podcast. Um, and so, you know, just a lot of folks, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing some and I apologize for that, but, uh, it's a big group, but, um, there's a lot of people doing good work. Agreed. And as are you, my friend, you're doing some great work and always lovely to hear what's happening on the fly and also the the big thinking and as i as i explore this space a little bit more i'm going to lean on you more and more here so be ready for it you got it i'm i'm at the ready <laughs>